Welcome back to another episode of the RAG podcast with me, Sean Anderson, the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media. This is the show where every single week I bring to you some of the brightest minds, the leaders, the owners, the founders, the investors, the suppliers to our global recruitment industry who are prepared to give up some of their time and, and tell their story, both what they've been up to over the, the, the past few years, um, all the way through the, the pandemic, and, and most importantly right now, where do we see the future of the recruitment industry? What is going to happen post-pandemic? Um, today, I'm super excited. I've been waiting for this one. We've been waiting since, uh, I think, start of start of January. Um, I'm joined by Tim Cook, who is the group CEO of Engage Specialist Recruitment. Now, if you, you might not have heard of Engage because they are the group portfolio business for, I think it's like 13, 14 recruitment companies. GCS being um, one of the biggest that um, I interviewed uh, David there their CEO, I think it was the week of lockdown. Um, so David Bloxham was on there in March. If you listen back to that episode, it's bizarre because we did not know what was happening. Um, but Tim has been in the industry for um, since 1987, I believe, which is when I was one year old. So I didn't have a uh, gray hair back then, which is surprising. Um, Tim uh, has spent a lot of time in both at Hayes and then um, a number of businesses that we, uh, well, I'm, I'm just super excited to find out about. So Tim, Welcome on the show. Hi, Sean. Nice, nice to be here. So, yeah, I mean, there's the stories of the the career. There's so I guess. much there. There's so, so much there. There's so much there, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think a lot of it's quite the same, right? You know, it's eat, sleep, rave, repeat. So, you know, what well, I think I forget more than I've learned, right, these days. So, I think the game is that the world keeps moving on. So, the challenge is to stay current, right, and to look at what's really going on. There's quite a lot of Actually, we could call it old recruiters kicking about that are still trying to do what they were doing in about 1990. Yeah. And I don't think it washes anymore. I think you've got to work with the kids, you've got to work with the youngsters and, and actually think and listen about what's going on in the macros because the world is very, very different than when I was a kid. You said 1987, that's absolutely right. That's about 30, oh, I can't remember, 300 years ago. 33 years yeah. Yeah, something like that. It's a long time anyway. But what yeah. fun, all right? It's all been good all the way through. Can you paint a picture for us then, Tim? Just take us back to 1987. Like, why did you get into it? You joined Hayes. What was it like? Just paint that visual for us. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't Hayes at the time. It right. was. I think it was. Uh, it was a. I joined a firm called Montrose, which was a, right. a construction recruitment business. And uh, the truth of it is, like, like I suspect everybody in recruitment, right, is that nobody wants to be a recruitment consultant. You just kind <laughs> of end up here, right? And then unfortunately, once you're in it, it's really hard to get out of. And, you know, you just kind of end up in it or in around it or in one of the peripheries. Mm -hmm. So I, I left a, a, a quite a posh public school, actually, having pretty much dropped out after A-levels. And I got a, a commission-only job, which my father was mortified by. <laughs> he cut that out of the Telegraph for it was called Interviewer Required. Yeah, yeah. And this was this job as a recruitment consultant. Um, and I, I went along for that because it had a, a huge basic at the time of four and a half grand. But it's okay because it was guaranteed at five. So, you know, really, really good job back yeah. in the day. Um, and I, I just, you know, I went there, started, I, I lied about my um, my degree in civil engineering um, and uh, managed to convince them I was 21, I was 18. Uh, I did tell them <laughs> before I started. And the response was, wow, well, you convinced us, so you must be all right at this sort of thing. So yeah, come on yeah. in. So that was that was the that was. I don't, the, know if that says, I don't know if that's good or bad about this industry, Tim. I'm a bit well, <laughs> no, I think I think it, I think it's bad actually, and I think that that's something I'd like to develop a bit later on about the professionalisation of it. But uh -huh. back in the day, there weren't many recruitment consultancies about. You know, it was an unusual. 
you know, I'm a recruiter. We weren't recall recruitment consultants in those. We were interviewers or or, or HR or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I just started as we all do on a desk. You know, you're working it out as you go. I got a job as a troubleshooter, they called it, which was I thought sounded very very exotic. Yeah. What it actually meant was I went and looked after the desks where all the last lot of recruitment consultants had left, and so oh, I tried wow. to pick up the bits. But again, interesting baptism of fire because you get to see lots of different things. So kind of very long story because i was at hayes for 24 years um i did the usual stuff become the office manager then the regional manager uh, and then i was asked would, would do i fancy a challenge and idiotically i said well of course before realizing what that challenge was which was going open a business in scotland and ireland um and i went okay give it a go and i think well one of the bits of councils i counsel i give people i lived in scotland for seven years and yeah really Four in Yorkshire, so I consider myself a kind of honorary northerner, yeah. um, despite the fact I was born in South East London. Yeah. But I think one of the things I say to everybody in the, the, the firms is just volunteer for everything, go for everything. I think people get a little bit stuck on their desk, you know, they're a little bit frightened to move, they've got their relationships. And that's fine, right? And if you want to stay as a you know, 40, 50-year-old recruiter running your desk, it's actually not a bad job. No, it's not. If if you want to climb a career, if you want to know, you just got to volunteer for stuff. And I think back in the day, you know, Scotland was exotic. Nowadays, it's Asia, Singapore, Australia, America, you know, Germany. Scotland. That, that's the headline of this episode. Back in the day, Scotland was exotic. It you was. Get, yeah, it you was. Get the Odro, the lot are going to be like, I told you so. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> And, and it, it was true, but you know, we, my, you know, I was with about twenty-seven or something when we went, and uh, took yeah. my girlfriend at the time with me. We got married up there. We had a couple of kids up there. We lived in Edinburgh. Um, I'm going to upset anybody. I said you can live in Newcastle, Edinburgh, or Glasgow. It, it doesn't matter because we're opening offices in all three of those at this, on the same day. Yeah, Edinburgh. I've and, heard uh, Edinburgh. I've never been to Edinburgh. I've heard it's a quick. Really well, really we nice. were driving. We were driving over the hill in the gates here, and she said, "Just keep going, just keep going." And that was, <laughs> that was that. So, apologies, Newcastle, which is a, a spectacular town, by the way, or yeah. city, should I say? Um, but we did Edinburgh. We then opened in Ireland, and uh, again, that was interesting because I was the first person in Hayes ever to run more than one of the brands. And I think what people don't sometimes think about is Hayes, that Hayes was a multi-boutique brand. There was a county personnel, there was an IT recruitment business, there was a Montrose, which was a huge construction, by far bigger than everybody else put together. Um, but they were entrepreneurially run specialist verticals. So they said to us, look, will you run Ireland as a, as a, a kind of group? And, and that was my first lesson, actually, which is it's impossible. And I think when, if, if I'm honest with you, I, I'd spent about three weeks talking to these accountancy recruiters and uh, I didn't know the difference between an ACA and an ACCA. And I, I just rang up and said, Look, you have to send me a regional director who understands accountancy to help me run this stuff. So I, I tend to come from a view that actually, when you look at the leadership of these businesses, they're good at what they know. They know what they know. They know how to make that work in sector when they try to run the regional stuff, it suddenly becomes much harder. Yeah. And it's not to say it's impossible, but at an operational level, I think it's quite hard because I think, you know, you tend to default to your kind of background and where you grew up. So when you look around these businesses, you know, one of the regions who came out of a construction background, they've got a brilliant construction business and a dreadful accountancy business. You know, the one that came out of accountancy has got a fantastic accountancy business and a terrible construction business. So actually doing this in a rational, 
general management way is quite hard until you get to the exec, right? And then I think it changes. But but my point, my learn from that experience is you can run the infrastructure and you can run the back office, you can run the business broadly, but what you really want is people to eat, sleep, then then breathe their sector. And I think that's a common theme that I, I try and develop with people that you know, I've never met a hiring manager that doesn't want to talk to an expert and I've never met a, a candidate that doesn't want to talk to an expert. So again, until you get to this RPO MSP world, which is process driven, actually it's network driven or it's specialism driven. And the value for me in a really cool and really good recruiter is is its network. Yeah, And, and I think if I could just articulate that, you know, if you were looking for a finance director, yeah, sure, internal recruitment can have a go at it and stick some ads out and ring up a few people on LinkedIn. But a finance director is an important role, as are most roles, actually. And wouldn't you want to go and talk to someone who knew 150 finance directors that could present your vacancy to and really give you some insight into them? And, you know, do you care whether you pay 20 grand for that? Not interested. You want the right person because yeah, yeah. that's what a value is. So. So that was the story. Um, I then, you know, we carried on. I, I ran some other bits of the business. I ended up as the head of the UK and Ireland. And as we were chatting earlier, that was a big business. That was a, a couple of billion of revenue and about five and a half thousand staff. Wow. Um, I, I, interestingly, I was I was the MD at the time of the construction business and the IT businesses. And uh, I was sent to London Business School by the new incoming CEO, Alastair Cox, who this is a salutary lesson to us all, right? He looked at me and he said, "We are." And I, I thought I was the kiddie at the time. You know, I was good numbers. Everything's cool. It's growing, big business, thousands of staff. And he looked at me and he said, "Well, yeah, but you're a bit of a one-trick pony, Tim. You don't know much, do you?" Um, and, and he was absolutely right. I thought I knew everything. I knew nothing. So I was packed off to London Business School for some exec education, uh, which fundamentally changed my life i think actually changes how you see things and people are a bit sniffy in recruitment about executive education and that's naive honestly yeah yeah you know, i learned a huge amount there slightly embarrassingly um and i came back and he said right you're now going to be the ukmd now you've had your sheep dip of how to run a bigger business uh, and that was uh two weeks after lehman's collapsed so you can see how well I did it the, in the Hayes results because the day I took over, it all started going south at about a thousand miles an hour. And I spent two years firing people. So that was, was that? See, let, let's just stop there a sec. Like, let's go back to that. So can you remember where you were? Like, what can you picture the day where you, you know the news is hitting, like COVID, like September the 11th, but the Lehman's Brothers stuff? Can you remember that? Oh, yeah, yesterday, I, I was actually in London Business School and, you know, the news was breaking and the GFC, Global Financial Crisis, was just starting. And, of course, we were there with all the professors and all of the economists. So we asked them as a team, and you do these in teams of sort of 50, these kind of mini MBAs, and said to them, look, can you come and explain to us what's going on? And they just couldn't do it. And they said, this doesn't fit any of our models. And it was then that it started to dawn on people that actually this is potentially quite serious. So, you know, I then will come back to work. Um, and again, I remember that day as well. I came out of the lift and the finance director came out. He said, look, the job is yours. Just don't fuck it up. Right? And that was my into the board meeting. <laughs> and I was really excited. Again, a little bit naive. This is going to be really cool, isn't it? But it then ensued a really quite a tricky, tricky world. Um, yeah, no, it was a, it was a interesting times, but again, and I say this to 
the younger gen, if I could be so patronising, you know what? There, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. When we were going into COVID, I was saying to the guys, look, look, you know what? Plenty have seen it. Now, we've not seen a pandemic, and, and everybody talks about unprecedented, and of course it is unprecedented. But actually, it's a matter of time. It's a function of time. The world will bounce back, and that light is always at the end of the tunnel. It's just how far away is it? You know, I don't think it's been a recession that's lasted more than 18 months since the war. So mm. this is a game of, of, of hunkering down. And look at us now, post-2008 you know, GFC, we've had probably a 10-, 12-year bull market where businesses have just grown and grown and grown. And I don't really have a problem with a reset because you know I like the American model where you know, the Americans just fire everybody. But, of course, if you get rid of 10 million jobs, the following week you've got to start creating them again. And then yeah. from a recruitment point of view, it's always growth. So yeah. you know, this this JRS thing is quite interesting. I'm really intrigued to see how that pans out in the UK. But as in, in a, it, stuff happens, and you know you need to you need to just kind of work out how you're going to get through the darker days. <laughs> so you said you took Lehman's on, walked into this boardroom, and then you spent the next two years firing people. So what, tell us a bit more about that. Like what realistically, well, how did you structure it, and how did you cope with that? Well, well, it's horrendous, right? I think he's, he's the first point. Is that everybody loves hiring people. Nobody likes firing people, which is, yeah. which is a problem, unless you're a bit weird, of course. Um, so you've got people that have worked for you for many years that suddenly start to look quite expensive. And I think, you know, if you're not billing fees and you're not really got great client relationships in a corporate, actually you, you become quite vulnerable when the thing, you know, starts to get a bit tough. And, of course, they earn a lot of money. So, you know, you've got people that you're looking at your P&L and you're looking and you're going, wow, you know, this is an unsustainable number. So you end up starting looking at the first thing, the easy stuff is to take out the bottom. But actually, in reality, you have to start taking out the top and the middle and leaving, you know, the, the productive consultants in play. Uh, and again, you know, for me, if you've not got client relationships and you're not, you know, you're not adding real sales, real value to a business, you need to kind of keep looking over your shoulder. So again... One of the takeaways is, and this is not a vulnerability point, right? But everybody at my firm sells, right? From me down. So I must do three or four presentations with clients a week. Um, it's made it much easier with the, the Zoom because you know, I, I had a day, I, I keep saying this because it's a great example. I did, I did four visits on a day, four presentations. One was in Liverpool, one was in Amsterdam, one was in Austin, Texas, and the other one was in Michigan. Right. Yeah. That would have been two years of my two weeks of my life. Before. Well, I mean, that's the benefit. I mean, mine's the same. You know, I mean, I'm doing a and I did an academy this morning, eight o'clock. I've got people laughing at me because the weather's shit and they're in Sydney. And then later on tonight, I'm at five o'clock and I'll be dealing with people in the US. And it is it's changed the game. Well, you literally just overrode my brain, right? So when you when you said people get expensive without billions in relationships, I then backtracked and went. You just said that people should take opportunities in corporate. So how do you do both? And then you kind of said, well, everyone sells. So I want, you know, if I'm the guy that goes, well, you know, I'm in a corporate, I want to climb the ladder, a new opportunity comes up. I'm dropping everything I know to go and move to Ireland or whatever, change sectors, grow a team, be a troubleshooter. Potentially, if shit hits the fan, everything I actually used to have the reins of is no longer under my, my, my remit. So I'm, I become more exposed. So what, tell us about how, how does that fit together? Well, I've done it's fair. I think that the point is, is, is the activity that you do 
rather right. than necessarily you can build relationships quite quickly i think and and again as a chief exec it's even easier actually because people will actually talk to you kind of helps mm. um but i think regardless of the job title it, it's about are you in the front line are you are you leading your troops like a captain or are you general Melchit sitting in the back pushing the bits of pawns around and looking at spreadsheets right and i think my point is you need to be leading the charge, right? And yeah. you need to be seen to be leading the charge because I think that's what makes people follow you. And mm -hmm. that's a really important part. I'm, I'm a bit cynical about recruitment management per se. I think lots of recruiters are kind of learned by osmosis. You know, you can't stop them chasing interviews, right? Once they've got them, trying to get them to do some activities, always a bit of a challenge. And then you've got a debate about, you know, KPIs versus non-KPI management, lifestyle versus corporate. But the truth of the matter is, it, you know, real leadership is about keeping people motivated and excited. And I think the only way you can do that is from the front rather than from behind. So I think that's my point. And that's right. the vulnerability. You know, if you, if you panicked all your time about looking over your shoulder, you're probably in the wrong game, I think. <laughs> There's some truth in that, for sure. So, okay. So then how did the... The, the time at Hayes come to an end and you look into different different avenues. Well, I, I, then, I then went, Alistair Cox came in. It was, and again, I've got not a bad word to say against Hayes. I thought it was a fantastic business. And I actually think Alistair did a really good job with it, which I didn't really understand at the time. Mm. Um, and one of the things that he sorted out was the brand. So Hayes was always struggling against Paige because Hayes had a sort of jumble sailing brand and, uh, hey, and Paige had a really quite smart brand. And he fixed that and he paid quite a lot of money. We used uh, an outfit called Interbrand to, to sort it out. And people talk about, oh, they spent half a million good on a logo. That's not how brands work, right? That, mm. that the money is spent on hearts and minds and consistency and making things happen throughout an organization. And people don't really get brand. You know, they think it's colors and logos, but, you know, it's not. It's values and emotions. Mm. And, you know, how many, how many Apple logos have there been? hundreds of them yeah, right? yeah. you know but, but what do you think what do you think apple it's a polarizing brand interestingly but personally i think wow that's pretty cool right i want one of those and i won't be seen dead with not on apple product right. so the brand right. to me it, it matters what the logo who cares yeah so yeah. anyway Alistair then gave me a job which was um i'd like you to become the and please don't laugh at the job title but it was the global head of digital and innovation right okay and, and, he, and he had a couple of exam questions in there. And the first one was, what does a data-centric organization look like? Um, and that's a really smart question if you think about it for just two and a half seconds. How do you segment your business? Which are your most profitable lines of business? Who, what is working where? You know, what segmentation have you got? Of your database of 150,000 things, how many of them are actually using? And how do you work out which bit is which? So that's a really smart question. And of course, we didn't know. Um, and then it was a, can you solve the managed service problem for us? Because we were being at the time eaten alive by the comments here as the matrix of the world. And we didn't have a response to that at Hayes. We were a classic old recruiter yeah, in massive denial around, you know, we're not going to work with those guys, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the third question, well, yeah, I'm going to roll out websites in 28 countries and refresh all the tech stack around that. Of course, I knew nothing about that. So I was very fortunate to work with a fantastic CIO, Steve. Um, and we, we just had a blast for a couple of years. But just to be able to spend some time in a non-PL role, yeah, yeah. just looking at adjacencies. So 
what you realize very quickly is that the people that understand data are retailer financial services, right? They get it in a way that nobody else gets it. So they know what you're going to buy. They know what you bought last week. They know what you're going to buy next week because it's the same as you bought last week, right? If you like serving your Blanc, they'll offer you a deal and some vouchers. You know, if you haven't bought a Charles Terrett shirt for six weeks, they give you a 10% voucher. If you haven't bought one for 15 weeks, you get a 20% voucher. So eventually you go back. Yeah. So, you know, and there's points of pro- procurement, points of purchase, and the, and the frequency that you purchase. Pensions, mortgages, when you move house, you change your mortgage, you change your insurance. And this is all known and understood algorithmically, and therefore they can start to target stuff at it. Now, people talk about this in recruitment forever, and it doesn't work. And nobody's nailed this yet. Everybody's talking about matching. For about 10 years, there were billions of pounds spent on matching. Utter waste of money, utter waste of time. You know, anybody will change to suit any job and any job will change to suit anybody. The question is, can you get them in there? And that's given they have the core competency, right? So it's about persuasion. It's about emotion. It's about humor. The matching of algorithmically has been really not very successful, in my opinion. And it's my opinion, right? I'm sure other people would, would disagree. Yeah. So, so that was all good. Um, and then we were talking about, is it going to be self-service? The agency is going to be, you know, taken out of the, the market, get rid of the middleman, you know, and you see this quite a lot. Um, again, from a, a study point of view, this disintermediation, it's called, which is where you go and buy your stuff directly from the manufacturer, for want of a better term, without going through a broker. When you actually look at what goes on in industry, that's not what happens. What happens is you get an aggregation of the broker and yeah. there can only be one, right? And I think if you look at iTunes in that, they smashed it, right? Everybody thought we would be buying our music from Iron Maiden or from direct from whichever band you're, you're excited by. Never happened, right? What it was, it was aggregated by iTunes. Now, iTunes then dominated the market and were killing it. And then they were eaten alive by Spotify. Yeah, And again, when you study it from an innovation perspective, it wasn't Spotify didn't have anything cool at all. They changed the pricing model and the commercial model. So actually you can have as much as you like for a fiver a month as opposed to 99p for a better record that you might or might not own on your laptop. So, so you see this going on, this digital stuff. And I just was fantastic. And I, I, got, I got a bit nerdy about it all. Um, and then... I was, I was sitting in a board meeting kind of banging on about this stuff and there was just this general mood music of, yeah, all right, Tim, whatever, you just crack on and do your fancy stuff. We're going to you know stick to your knitting. Let's carry on. And I just became a little bit disenfranchised from it. I became a sort of what I would describe as a kind of uh, consultant to the board. And I used to be part of that board. You know, I, I was running after GP at a company. And so you kind of become a minister without portfolio, which was not where I wanted to be. I, I had doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, as he has he had generally had most people, you know, James Kahn was lurking about and uh, we ended up meeting him and Tristan. And uh, they said, well, look, we've got this asset. Why don't you come work for us and we'll do something with it? Don't know what yet. Um, and, you know, we'll sell it, float it. Don't know. And, and I went, actually, do you know what? That sounds really interesting. So I then joined this firm called Human Capital Investment Group, which was something that James and Tristan had put together. And I came in as the, I like to think of myself as the professional CEO, but people, you know, judgment will we'll see on that one. Um, to make it, you know, clean it up a little bit, put some rigor around it, put a little bit of governance in it. Um, and then we're going to go and do something with it. The learn, Sean, on this for me was spectacular. So I spent seven years on the management board of a FTSE 250, and I genuinely thought I knew a bit about business. Mm-hmm. I then 
I then spent about 10 minutes working with James Garn and realized I knew nothing about business, right? And the difference between corporate, well, one is high governance and strategy, which yeah. is very cool in some ways, but there's also downsides to it is that you're rather detached from the front end. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you lean on the tiller of your ship coming into harbour, you just hit the harbour, right? That made a difference. Um, whereas you go into, and, and I rudely describe it as drunken entrepreneurialism where anything goes, these businesses are terrific. You know, they're agile, they're exciting, they turn on a sixpence. Um, the downside of that is that they can't spell strategy and they sign contracts in the dark, right? Because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So, so the whole game here was to try and build something out of this, which took the good from the the corporate side, the good from the entrepreneurial side, and, and bang them together. And that's what we call Engage, is the entrepreneurial corporate. We're trying right. to get the best of both. The, the risk uh, management level is you could end up with the worst of both, right? So you, know, you, have, to, you have to keep your eyes open wide awake. Right? <laughs> well, how did that, you said that within 10 minutes, was there anything, have you got any stories or anything specific of working in, in that business with James? Yeah, so uh, it's like a real one. So we spent the first board meeting debating something called an ID line, right? So this is asset-backed finance, for those of you who understand it. Uh, invoice discounting is what the ID stands for. Yeah, I've never heard of it. And, you know, cash in haze was dealt with by the, the cash years and the, the, you know, the finance people, and I was an operator. And then I, whilst I looked at a balance sheet and a P&L, the actual mechanics of it, we had more money now what to do with. Our balance sheet was very strong. We didn't need to borrow it. And, of course, this is a brilliant tool, I do, for growing your working capital. Temp businesses consume cash on the way up. Yeah, right? and they throw off cash on the way down, which is why no one's gone bust yet, right? You know, or temp businesses haven't gone bust anyway. So, and, I, and again, my, my line was to the, I, the board meeting ended, James disappeared, and I looked at the finance director and I said, right, you, five minutes, you need to explain to me what this is. I've never heard of it. And he went, oh, wow, okay, he, he took me through it. It's cool. Um, and then my CEO said, actually, Tim, I've worked here five, I don't know what it is either. Could you, could you, could you, could I sit in? <laughs> and I, I guess the lesson, if there is one in there, is, is if you don't know, ask. Right, and we were so frightened of thinking they should know everything that they just spend years not knowing it, right, or pretending they know it, and that's not a smart place to be. No. So, you know, as a as a real example, the other bit that struck me is that the numbers are different. So I'd come from a place which had like three noughts on the end of everything, and or maybe six, right? You know, and I'm sitting there in a meeting going, "Where's well, new properties? Two hundred fifty thousand? Who cares?" Right, just get it done. Right? It's an inhibitor to growth. Yeah, and <laughs> it was just we were in total panic, and and I had to reset my thinking from. And all you're doing is take a note off the end. By the way, it's yeah. exactly the same problem, sex exactly yeah. but, but as an adjustment, that was really quite interesting. I'm interrupting this episode of the Rag Podcast to bring you a message from our sponsor, Audro. You know by now that Audro are the number one video interview platform for recruiters around the world. Now, they keep bringing out new features from Audro Capture to Audro Producer, and it just keeps getting better and better and better. But now, recently, they've just announced a new feature to the platform, which is a complete game changer. During COVID-19, they realized that the recruitment audience, the communication was changing. Globally, their clients and candidates were, were using Microsoft Teams and Zoom more than anything else. The phrase, let's jump on a Zoom call or jump on a Teams call has actually replaced the, the words video interview for a lot of their conversations over the last six months. 
Now, they were thinking, do we, I mean, how are we going to eradicate this? How are we going to make Odro the name that everyone talks about for, for the interview process? And they realized they didn't need to. They needed to integrate. So for the first time ever, they, they're the first video interview platform on the planet that have decided and managed to integrate with Zoom and soon to be integrated with Microsoft Teams. So with one click, after recording a Zoom video, you can now drag that into Odro and create everything else that Odro has from adding the CV, the heat maps, the capture, and the producer elements. You get all the benefits of Odro before and after the interview, but you get to use Zoom, which is client-friendly on all levels. So this is massive. Teams is coming. It's the first time anyone's ever done it in our sector, and it is literally going to change the way you work in 2021. Get in touch with my friends over at Odro at odro.co.uk. Or if you're already a user, reach out to your account manager to make sure you've got this feature. Back to the show. What, what happened in that? Why, why didn't you turn into the CEO of the, the, the James Khan group? Well, because the, the structure behind Hamilton Bradshaw was is he had a number of assets. He's got one of which was HCIG. And that was the one that I was there to carve out and take away and, and sell. Um, he wanted to do an IPO. I, I didn't. I just spent 20 odd years in a PLC. The last thing I wanted to do was be the CEO of an illiquid AIM listed stock, not keen, and that's grim. Um, but he incentivized me in a way that I said, actually, we should do this. He's got a good idea. <laughs> so we should get it away. Um, and we couldn't. And the, and the truth of the matter is, we, we trotted around the, uh, we started to around the private equity. Then we decided that the IPO was the way to go. We started on the roadshow. Again, these are just massive learning experiences, right, for, for me. Um, and we couldn't get enough sales visits or presentations in. And I don't think it was because the asset wasn't great. I think actually FDM had just been around and just gone in front of us. Boohoo had just gone in front of us. And our actual nomad, the head sales guy, was actually resigned on to us. So perfect storm. Um, and then, I'm again, I remember the day, you know, I'm sitting there going, wow, I, I could end up with a, an illiquid aim-listed stock and James Khan, which was not the plan at all. And that's not a negative to James. But, you know, I, I wanted to do a management buyout. That was I wanted to get it away in some way. So we canned it. And then uh, James and I sat in his office um, smoking cigars, actually, feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves because we, we a huge payday had just slipped out of our great grips. Um, so we then decided we took a weekend off and then we started in the private equity game again um, to try and see if we could get it away on a, on a, a management buyout, um, which is another whole story we could spend hours on and happy to talk a bit, if you like. Yeah, tell us a bit more. Well, so when you, when you do a management buyout, right, and this is a really interesting um, learning gig again, is that if you ask me, I think I bought it. If you ask Graphite, they think they bought it. And if you ask James, he thinks he sold it, right? So, so there's there's a, there's the dynamics of management buyout. Um, you've got the management. Um, I was being incentivized to sell it for the highest number by James, but I'm doing a management buyout. I want to buy it for the lowest number. So that, that's already <laughs> you've got this incredible conflict creeping yeah. into the model there. Yeah. Um, both of you are trying to keep the private equity guys excited about it because you need their backing to help you buy it. You know, this was a 90, 100 million pound deal, right? And, you know, we had to go to, to Graphite Capital, which gets up in a really good house. Um, but we need to keep them excited about the, the product because we want their backing. Um, and 
you know, you, you don't want to overpay or overbuy because as the management team buying it, if you overpay, you never make any money out of it the next time round, which yeah. is always the whole point of doing it in the first place. Mm. My advice to lots of people who are proprietors and owners is sell it to your management, actually. You know, I think a lot of people think their agencies are worth a lot of money and I've bought a number, trust me. Um, and, you know, most of the time their expectation of value versus what our expectation of value is are miles apart. Um, and there's only very few really exotic and exciting ones out there. And all the stories are apocryphal. We know them all. That You can list them on the fingers of two hands, right? The people that have made the real money, the Franks, the Fidens of the world. Um, but they were all really quite special businesses, right? They were all growing at an exponential rate. They had all smashed America. You know, there was a, there was a whole set of attributes in there that made investors go, this is quite interesting. It doesn't follow that if you've been running a recruitment business, you've got it to 30 or 40 people and it's pretty steady and it's growing at 5 or 10% a year. It's just not interesting to people and you'll never sell it. And unless you're prepared to properly invest in it and go for it, that asset is going to be very difficult to move. And they are incredibly hard to buy and they're even harder to sell recruitment businesses. And why? Because they're just people. Right? And, you know, how many people, how many times do we know, how many times have we seen fingers of more than two hands where people have paid quite a lot of money for an asset that's really not worth very much the other side, right? Because mm -hmm. all the people go. So I'm trying to bring all that back together. We did the management buyout with my partner in crime, Adam Heron. He's my COO. So the pair of us executed that. Very exciting. We were drunk for about three days afterwards. <laughs> um, you know, we thought we'd nailed it. And, of course, we're then going to double the size of the business and we're going to flip it and do a secondary management buyout in three years and we'll all be millionaires, Rodney. Yeah. And, and that was the game. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have three general elections of Brexit and the COVID disaster in in my business plan. So, you know, it, we've had a bit well, of a tough time. Yeah, just trying to, I'm trying to make sense of it all, right? So just, just so anyone's listening, right? So the human capital, was it H, H do you call it? HCIG, Human Capital Investment Group. Right, that was a recruitment. Was that a rec did you have? A, was that a recruitment company or? Yeah, it was. A, it was. A, yeah. It was. A, it was exactly the same as Engage, but it was no. called HSIG, as we called right. it. So, how many brands were? How many yeah, brands? Four or five it? brands underneath right. it. Right. So then um, you brought that out and rebranded it as Engage. And we rebranded it as Engage because what know, year was that? Twenty fourteen. Yeah. Right. So too long ago, in in my opinion. Right. Um, since then, you know, we doubled the size of it. I think there's about. 16 brands in the group now um again i think you know we we got it really going it's a platform so whilst they are all different specialist brands going to market if you lifted the lid off the top of engage it looks like a corporate um it run they all run on the same back office they all run on the same uh, crm systems different databases because they're independent companies um but actually underneath this is a proper platform so when we want to go to the States, for example, we just send the sales guys over there and they run off of our international platform. So it allows us to buy businesses, take synergy out of them, stick them on a platform, but not change the management and not change the brand. And that's the one thing I would advise everybody if you're buying a recruitment business is change the brand and change the management at your peril because the people will just disappear. Yeah, you're basically then, losing, you're losing everything that got it to where it is, right? Um, absolutely right yeah um so it was all good and then covid came along and again we never chat about covid in a second but you know we were getting ready to do a turnabout now um supported very much by our private equity backers and we wanted to do it and that would have been very cool 
but clearly COVID kicked, you know, gave everybody a bit of a kick in a bloody nose. So it's probably knocked us back a couple of years and we'll see how quickly and how aggressively we can grow this back from where Let's we get, are. I want to get back to that. I just oh, There's a gap, right? So the seven years, I, and I do this chronological thing because it just, ha- I don't know, I just enjoy it, right? <laughs> I hope people listening do because I fucking love it. But anyway, so I'm just trying to imagine it. What did the business look like when you when James is out, you, you've got Graphite, you've got Adam. What did the business look like? You said you had six brands. Can you just, where, where were you based personally, like, Paint a bit oh, I, was, I was based out of the city, um, yeah. in the city of London. We were predominantly a UK public sector tent business, right? With a little bit of um, uh, construction. So, this is brands like Caritas, Eden Brown, Synergy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a domestic recruiter. James wasn't particularly excited about international stuff. So, that's exactly what it was. So, we did, uh, you know, and, and the public sector, you know, has been. It was going downhill relatively interesting. We'll talk about different sectors. Now, health had a purple patch and then a bad patch. Local government's been quite commoditized through the uh, neutral vendors. So it looks a bit ex-growth UK public sector from a, a strategic point of view. Mm. So we did what we called a strategic pivot and we started to build out our STEM businesses. So we acquired GCS, the one you mentioned yeah. earlier on. Um, we've acquired Henlo. Um, we, we accelerated EWI, which is our um, renewable business, and we had a fledgling mechanical engineering business, which we've turned into an automation business to, to, to kind of pick up on the, um, the the logistics and distribution, which is going gangbusters, as you can imagine. There's one thing that's utterly unaffected by COVID, and that's people like Ocado and, and Amazon, right? So... So that that now represents about forty percent of the group. Our STEM businesses. Um, we've also pushed hard on the MSP, and now we're increasingly pushing hard on the RPO side of the market for a couple of reasons. Is that um, firstly, you have to be friends with MSPs if you want to run a temp business, and there's a lot of people still out there, the older lags that refuse to do business with them, yeah. and I'm not going to do business at that margin. Well, what really happens, and I've looked at this globally, is um, you know, the last time I looked, anybody who repl- employed numbers of contractors at scale are big corporates, right? Mrs. Miggins Pie Shop does not employ many IT contractors. So everybody talks about the SME market or the startup groovy market in technology. It's really hard to make money there. And, you know, whilst we can talk the odd example of, oh, well, we're going up with this one because we found a unicorn, there's a lot more that, that doesn't happen. Um, so if you want to do contracting, particularly in the US or the UK, you need to start thinking about making the MSPs your friends, right? Or you need to become one. And I think our view of the world is that we had enough scale that we could actually win some of this stuff. And we would had a bit of luck uh, and we've started to develop that now. We've won quite a lot in the health space. Um, you know, we run uh, Mighty and Interserve now, which is a, you know, that's a big spend on, on contingent labor. Um, and of course, Part of that is you can fire a lot of that into your own businesses in our model. Even if you're selling a, a master vendor or a, a neutral vendor, or what we sell is a, a blended solution to that. So both um, the clients you do with the client's um, agreement, but actually if you win a really good customer and own the customer, you can get quite a lot of labor into those customers through your specialist businesses. So here we are. We've now gone from a domestic UK public sector business, largely, uh, we bought another construction recruitment business called Set Square, 
um, and we carved out the built business from Eden Brown. So we've now got probably the biggest privately owned built environment recruiter um, in the country. Um, we have still have the big public sector qualified social workers. So we're probably the biggest provider of qualified social workers to UK PLC. You know, we're running north of 1,800 to 2,000 QSWs a week. Um, so we've got real pre presence there. Um, and now we've got this growing STEM business, which is, is really exciting. And it's the STEM business that is internationalizing our business now. So our customers are starting to take us to the States. Our customers are taking us to Northern Europe. So I think as we go forward in a post-COVID strategy, what does it want to look? What do we want to look like? Well, we want to look like we're growing across the US, we're growing across Northern Europe, and we're winning more MSP and RPO business. And that, to me, starts to look like an attractive asset for somebody who would like to invest in it, with the caveat that you can get trajectory in it. So you know, we're looking to add, I guess, probably a couple of hundred heads this year to the business um, across those brands and across those territories and geographies. So I'd expect this to be at probably a thousand recruiters by the time we get to the next 18 months, two years, um, at which point the trajectory looks good. The geographies look good. We're only really interested in structural growth markets. So your runway's good. And all of those things appeal to potential investors. And I think. Let's sorry. go back one set just to, because I'm thinking about the audience. There's, there's, yeah. I want to get into this, but the bit around buy-in. So when you're going to go after that audience, so you bought GCS, you bought Henlo, yeah. looking at this, whether it's STEM or whatever, like what, tell me what, what, what are the key levers you're looking at as the group CEO when you're, and how do you go about that process of, of targeting and, and acquiring organizations? Well, okay. We've already established it's quite difficult, right? Yeah. And we've already established people have got different views of the world in terms of value expectation, right? Sure. Um, we, we look for certain attributes in businesses which are pretty consistent. So we like temp. Yeah. We, we don't like perm. Yeah. Um, we like uh, contracted work rather than just spot transaction. We don't like client concentration, i.e. all their clients, you know, they're getting all their work out of one client. Um, we don't like consultant concentration. So, you know, show me your business with 10 people in it where, you know, agent, the fees are coming out of the top two. I wouldn't touch it with yours. Mm. Right. So there's a set of attributes around that go to value, right? And and what really value means is attractiveness. So if you if you people talk about valuations of, of recruitment businesses and you know, let's keep it easy, right? It's gonna be somewhere between one and ten times the profit, right? And and everybody talks about this stuff. So let's pick five. Let's go down for perms. Let's go down for a flat trajectory. Let's go down for client concentration, consultant concentration. So you get a 10 to 20 person perm business with three or four really good billers in it that's been running steadily for the last five years at a similar sort of scale. One or two times is what it's worth, no more. And of course, everybody thinks it's worth seven or eight times because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what I want to go for. Now, if you take the five and let's go up for you've got some really big contracted MSP business, let's go up for scale, right? If you've got a 500 to 1,000 consultants, right, they're not all going to leave tomorrow morning. So that's good. You won't have any client concentration. You won't have any consultant concentration. Let's go up for international. Let's go up for trajectory. So when you get to look for a business, first of all, we're not interested in markets that aren't structural growth markets. So clearly, you know, med tech, 
life sciences, technology, digital, all of these are structural growth markets, right? They're, they're good. You know, secretarial clerical is not, right? Mm -hmm. It's being automated. It's, in, it's an ex-growth business. So tick number one is structural growth market. We then look at it in the terms of where does it look attractive? And, you know, that's how we, that's how we, we deal with the world. Sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes people put a little bit of lipstick on the pig and sometimes you, you get a bargain. You know, and, and the truth of the matter is that it really comes down to the people. And, and we tend to do deals where we want the existing management to come with us on the journey. So if the CEO, if the founder says, look, I've, I've got a strong leadership team, you know, let's say there's 50 of us, Leadership teams, five people, six people. We've got a nice concentration. It's split. We've got contract and perm. But I want a, I want to walk away personally. Like you know, I'm not doing any deals anymore. Everyone else is running it. Is that something, or do you want that person to well, come? Well, so, so so again, it, it's, it all depends, doesn't it, on, on the situation. Right? <laughs> I love these games. So so the truth of the matter is, everybody trying to sell their business tells you they don't do anything, but they they organise the Christmas party, right? That, that's what everybody who's trying to sell their business and get out says, right? <laughs> and, and, and and it takes me about three minutes of interviewing the managing director who's just been stood up as the boss, right, to work out that actually they are nowhere near running this business, right? So is it genuine or is it not? Are they really in it or not? And then I think for me, you know, if we take GCS as a really good example of that, is what we did is we helped David and his management team affect the management buyout. So we helped them buy it off of Chris at the time, who was the owner and founder. Um, and we left Chris with a little stub in it as well, which says that when we go again, you know, he will get a second bite of the cherry. It's not a big one. It's economic only. It's nothing to do with the business. But he, he's there to help us, not hinder us in that context. He's not yeah. all out. And I think... We, and we would only do that deal if David and the team thought we were a good platform for them to come and achieve the goals that they want. So for us, it's about alignment. The reason we are not buying hundreds of recruitments is because that situation is difficult to engineer or create or see as an opportunity. Yeah. You know, when you expect me to put, you know, we, we get, you know, best and final offers by Thursday for buying a business, we tend to just ignore them. Right, and that what that really means is that the ownership don't care about who buys it; they just want as much money as possible. That's not a place we go. Yeah, and, and our model is slightly different to most. In that, the reason we don't go to market as engage is because that's a hold co. It's got five staff, right? Of which you're talking to one of them. Yeah, and we we start back by and and help operate, you know, boutique and specialist recruitment businesses. We don't really want to run them; we want to help them grow. Um, so we're not a trade buyer so, and people, we, we have some trouble sometimes explaining that we are much more like a private equity house and we can do deals on either side of that. We can do a trade deal if we want to, but equally we can create subco equity in GCS. So Dave's a shareholder of GCS as are his management team and they will win on the upside. They did a management buyout supported by Engage. So exciting. So interesting as well. It's different than a lot of, it's different than a lot of people's vision for where they're going to probably end up, I think. But it, it, I think it's really important that people like yourself share share this insight because there's so many people that are starting businesses every day who don't have access to people like you. They've never spoken to someone like you. They're just a good recruiter. They're just a top biller that thinks, well, you know, I'll uh, replicate. Uh, listen, Sean, one of the problems with recruitment that I see, and by the way, I'm a recruitment consultant, so I, I, can, I can throw this stone, right? 
is that we don't know much, right? You know, we're good at placing people and we often promote our best recruiters into management positions, which means you normally lose your best recruitment result and get a pretty average manager. So that's mm -hmm. not really smart, but everybody wants to be promoted status and, this, and that kind of happens. And actually, where would you know it? Where would you learn this stuff unless you educate yourself and you either exec education helps, um, but there isn't anything better than having grey hair around the temples who's been there, seen it, done it, giving you some counsel. Mm. So, you know, if you're trying to sell your recruitment business, get a grown-up to help you and get someone who's done it before, who understands what's going on and will blow out some of the myths that we all talk about in the pub and tell you some of the truths. And and the reason that would be really important to, to a recruitment business that's growing is, you know, that strategy, right? So if you're going to start a recruitment business, where's your exit? How are you going to get out of it? How are you going to be able to walk away? Are you going to run it for cash or are you going to run it for value? And they're very different things, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither, neither of them are wrong, right? You can have a brilliant life. And I know lots of my mates that have run and still run recruitment businesses they've run for 20 or 30 years where they yeah. just take dividends out of the bag and live a lovely lifestyle and that's fantastic but they'll never sell them right because they're normally leveraged up with debt they've taken their cash out of it they've got a big id line and there's a lot of boring financial stuff that goes behind that that says that asset's probably worth nothing because they've lived and taken all the money out of it on the way through if you leave it all in and you invest and you grow it then you've got an asset that you can sell and, and the, the challenge from a strategic point of view is which of those do you want to be, right? Yeah. And I don't have a view against either of them. They're both as good as each other. They're just different. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the tax used to be a brilliant result in certain sectors, but that's becoming less interesting for people. So do you want, you know, some millions dropped into your bank account one day or do you want to take it out a couple hundred grand a year? Pays your money, it takes your choice, right? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. A final interruption to today's episode to introduce Vincere. Vincere is the all-in-one CRM ATS platform built for the recruitment and staffing industry. Now, I first heard about these guys about a year ago. The amount of prospect recruitment agencies and clients I was working with that were telling me they were moving over to Vincere, I had to look into it. And what I found was a business that had a global reach um, with multiple offices around the world. So they've got this follow the sun methodology, which allows them to support recruitment businesses wherever you are and, have, and, and be in your time zone. But the technology that they've invested in um, is becoming a, a disruptor in the space. More and more recruitment businesses are, are doing this to give their, their recruiters a competitive advantage. They broke into the G2 crowd's momentum grid as a market leader based on their reviews from their customers. So the, the agencies that are using this platform are raving about it. Now, if you're a rag listener and you're thinking about changing CRM or you're a new business looking to launch with a new CRM, then I would get in touch with, the, with these guys because if you mention that you're a rag listener, they're doing an amazing deal. By visiting www.vincere.io forward slash rag, you can get an exclusive deal which offers two months completely free on a two-year commitment or three months completely free on a three-year commitment. This applies to all licenses that you've either signed up for now or that you'll add in the duration of the contract. So get on there and have a look. Finally, if you're listening, you're a recruiter and you're thinking, I want to move into a more of a business development role um, and I'd like to keep hold of my recruitment knowledge. Well, these guys are recruiting for a BD person, well, multiple roles in both Sydney and London right now. So if you've got a strong recruitment background, you want to move into BD and you want to work for a fast moving tech business that's helping people like you right now, then get in touch via their website because they're hiring today. Back to the show.
Okay, so then let's get back to where we were about 15 minutes ago with the, the vision for Engage and what, what where you thought you would be around about now. So let's go to what, what was the plan pre-COVID of where you would be? Okay, so, so the N in Engage, and you'll notice it's a little N, it's the yeah. integer N, right, which means any number. So we are quite relaxed about the number of brands and specialist companies that are in the group because we see them as effectively a sales division, right? And they are companies in their own right, and there's often some co-equity with them, but effectively they run off the platform. So as long as they are running off the platform, this is never going to be a jumble sale. It's just divisional sales go to market, right? So for me, I can keep adding these in you know good order um, in interesting markets with good runways. We want to then get scale into them if we can. So I don't, I'd rather not have 100 three-man businesses. I'd much rather have 20, 100-man businesses, if that makes sense, because mm -hmm. I think going to scale markets get easier as, as you become the go-to name, be famous for something. So, so that's the plan. Let's get to about 20 companies and then let's put scale into each of those companies running off of the platform. Let's internationalize it. Right. And that's easy for us. We offshored all of our back office, all of our platform is run out of uh, India and Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and we're about to, we're thinking about starting one in Eastern Europe as well um, for language capacity over uh, Europe. Let's get all of those 20 brands to all open a division in Europe and in America. Yeah. And just as we got to pre code, we had, I think we had seven of them all started in America and they were all making a profit. And we go, well, this, this is it. We're on our way. We're going to add at least 200 heads this year. It's going to be spectacular. You know, the EBITDA, honestly, when you talk value, you know, getting a business making a million quid is worth not a lot, right? Getting to five actually starts to be a bit more interesting. If you can get it at 10 million EBITDA, you start to look much more interesting. Yeah. And when you get to 20 million EBITDA, you start to attract a very different kind of investor. It opens up all sorts of other opportunities. So our very simple plan was to get it to 20 million EBITDA with a good story, which it is, I think. Um, and then go and do it again and take it to 40. And, you know, if you want to follow a story, you know, if you look at AMS, Alexander Mann, of course, well, where did that come from? That came out of James Kahn's stable. It went through Graphite Capital, right? And it's gone through another two or three turns. And Rosaline's made a lot of money. It was, last time, I think it was sold for about $800 million or something like that. Um, and, and that's the journey. We were just going to get it to 10, get it to 20. We got it to 10, sold it. We were getting it to 20. We'll sell it again. And we're with it to 40 and then by which time you know you can retire mr cook to the chairman's cabin and leave him alone sticking pencils up his mouth <laughs> <laughs> so so all right so what would that have meant for you personally like you don't have to give exact numbers but like what would the what would it have meant had kobe's not hit right now for you i think if we were doing the turnabout now i think you know i'm 52 right um and i think the next investor is going to say, well, we're going to have this asset for, let's say, five years. Actually, you're going to be 57 at that point. And is anybody going to buy it for the bloke for they're going to do the next five years? The guy's going to be 63. So, again, thinking strategically, thinking ahead where you're trying to get to, you know, where will we be? I would be doing exactly the same job as I'm doing today, but we would be working with the investors to develop the succession plan. Who's going to be the next chief executive of the group? Is that an internal, external? We've got some fantastic people in our company, I have to say. Um, and I spend a lot of time working with them and teaching them, you know, stuff that I do know or I've learned, you know, working with the banks, et cetera. Um, and then I think 
I, you know, I would have made some money. I would have reinvested half of that money back into the NUCO, right? We'll, mm-hmm. we'll go again. And I will be looking to become, I guess, the chairman, right? And whether that starts as an exec chairman and it ends up as a non-exec chairman, so you get a smooth transition. And then probably at that next turn, I'm probably done, unless they want you to hang on as the chairman, which would be a delight, right? But, you know, I'm growing up enough to know that it all best laid plans of mice and men. So at a personal level, yeah, make a few good. We've made a few good along the way, right? Clearly, we've done a management buyout. We've done a refi, uh, which means giving money back to the private investors. Um, we, you know, we will do the next turn. You know, the one after that would probably be significant beach money. Um, but you know, most of my net worth is still in this organisation, and you know, I've got. I'm not. I'm not skinned, right? I've. I've got enough, but I. I'd like a big check out at some point, wouldn't we all? But I'm still going to get up in the morning and go and do it again because, you know, my kids are grown up now. I've got to have to do something to do, right? <laughs> I love that. I love that attitude. So but how did it, I mean, how do you mentally cope with it? Does it, does it get to you? Does it, do you, do you go through that? Like, for example, I, I, it's totally different, but like in 2017, when I started Hoxo, I put 20 grand into Bitcoin, but I put it into a fund with a friend, a lad who used to work for me in recruitment. If he's listening, he knows I don't like him anymore because he took my money, put it into this fund. As soon as I wanted my money back, classic problem, couldn't get it, blah, blah, blah. Um, don't own any coins, don't know what the fuck happened to my money. And I've got, I've lost nine grand so far. And Bitcoin, if I'd have bought six coins on that day, I'd be worth a, it'd be 300 grand now, something like that. And it, that still bothers me today. Like those, this, I really mentally struggle with those decisions. I know I can't change it, but... It bothers me. Like, do you have those? Do you have moments where things bother you, or do you, have you learned to just live with all these things? Uh, honestly, I don't. I, I have a I have a term right, which I call just jump off the cliff and pack your parachute on the way down, right? And I'd back myself to be able to get for, you know, get the parachute packed before I hit the rocks, right? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't mean you will, by the way. Um, yeah. But I think you, you've got to have a degree of confidence about what you're doing. But then you want to add a little bit of rationality to that, don't you? So, you know, lots of deals are always done. And particularly in recruitment, you see is I'll give you some equity when we get to this level. You know, it's a very common thing. You know, I have never seen a proprietor sell a business and, and share out any of the equity, right? Because nobody gives equity away when it's got value. They might offer it up when it's value less, right? So I think if you're going to make a decision, whether it's going to be investing in a Bitcoin or investing in something else, my counsel is paper it properly, right? So, and what I mean by that is just because Sean and you and I become best friends, right? And we do a deal, right? And, you know, we both put in X amount of money to this venture. Fantastic. And we're all good friends drinking beers. One of us gets run over and my assets are picked up by somebody else, right? Actually, you haven't got any record of that deal anywhere because you shook hands with your mate. And whilst my word is my bond, if I'm not there, somebody else might have a different opinion. So back to your point with your mate, you know, where was the paperwork behind it, right? And what happened to it? And can you chase it? So that's the first one. Is it, is it stress? You know, when you're borrowing 100 million quid, you know, if you owe somebody a million quid, it's your problem. If you owe 100 million, it's going to be theirs, right? So, you know, again, I think there's a level of scale around this that you, you have to kind of not panic about. And I think you're much more panicked about a 20,000 than when you put lots of noughts on the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, because, again, the, the, the level of diligence that goes in behind this really means that everybody knows what they're doing and their eyes open wide awake. And it's you're only ever going to do something that you think your competencies will allow you to do. 
right? If I've never packed a parachute, I wouldn't jump off the cliff. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Sorry, I'm, I'm just going around there. My, my dog's uh, woke up. He's not normally with me in the day, but he's today. He is. I've, 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 locked, I've locked mine out. He's making, some right, he's making some right noises, Henry. Shut up. Shut up in the background. This is what happens when you go locked down and your podcast becomes virtual. You know, things get in the way. But isn't that, isn't that part of one of So I think I've met most of my staff and teams, kids and dogs and cats over the last 12 months through this COVID period. You know, we're, we all know that everybody's got their elephant's breath wallpaper and sunken spotlights. And, you know, it, it, we've been in each other's houses, right? So I think this is now totally normal, right? It is. It is. So what... When it comes to the pandemic, tell us what you've seen. You've run a 750-man business when most people have been very, very insular, sometimes, you know, going from 20 to 10 to 3 to 4. I was getting calls left, right, and center. Sean, I furloughed everyone. Like, how can you help me build a brand on LinkedIn? That kind of – that was the sort of conversation. You know, 81% of our sector is sub-10 staff. Tell us what it was like from your perspective. What did you see over the last 12 months? Well, let the, the, fir the first things first is you don't know what you don't know, right? So, you know, as a, as a chief exec, we're sitting there faced with this problem and you've got quite a lot of people's livelihoods in your hand, frankly. Um, mm. And the first question for me was liquidity, right? So how do we protect liquidity? And um, we did some very swift moves. I took a 20% pay cut, so did everybody else, right? Um, we did furlough some people, 200 people, I think, in the markets that were just closed, right? Mm. So there's no point in hanging on to them. Um, if I'm honest, if there wasn't a furlough, I would have let them go, mm -hmm. right? There was no way that anybody could afford to, to just have everybody sitting about doing nothing. But the, the JRS actually worked in that, that context. Uh, we focused, we turned every board meeting into a cash collection meeting rather than a strategy meeting. So the businesses were focused fully on cash, writing good businesses, looking at the clients they're doing business with. So the whole game moved from profit to cash overnight. And that was to give us a fighting fund that would allow us to then survive and ride out what we didn't know was going to be three months, nine months, 12 months, right? Once we got the liquidity kind of calmed down, you're now in a position to say, okay, how do we manage this? And I think we could talk for hours about the remote working, but everybody's kind of done that to death, right? You know, how do you look after your staff remotely? How do you engage with your staff? I think we've done in some places a great job of that. I think in some places we've done a pretty good job of that. And I think, you know, there's always that from good to bad in there. But broadly, I think we've done it well um, from the remote piece. But once we had the cash sorted out and we were liquid enough, we took the JRS money, we did the time to pay stuff, you know, we spoke to the banks. We actually paid every single capital loan repayment and interest payment to all of our banks. We didn't have to. Uh, but we want we took the view that they see us as a, a quality asset. And if you want to upset your bank, you know, dick them about. Right. You know, we've then paid back the HMRC. We're still sitting on the time to pay on the VAT, but we intend to repay that over time. Um, and then we paid back all of the money to the staff that took the pay cut. So um, once we realized we had enough cash, I saw it as, well, just to protect the company. We're all taking some pain, including me. It's effectively a, a, a revolving finance tool, right? So, you know, so it's, it's a borrowing, right? So if you're borrowing it off of me, you're borrowing it off, I'm borrowing it off my staff, well, I'm going to expect it back if the money's in the business the other side of this. And we mm -hmm. were very lucky that we got to a point. Some of our businesses were pretty good hedge. Actually, the public sector has now become a, quite a sexy part of our business to investors because it, it, it's proven it's COVID. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas it was seen as a, 
uh, a sort of dusty old aunt, you know, and, and now it's the bell of the ball again. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, and that was great. Um, you know, our accounts in finance business just took a total kick in. A lot of the perm business took, took a total kick in, contracting less so, um, and the books carried on. And again, one of the idiosyncrasies of a big tent business, we pay four or 5,000 contractors a week, is that if it shrinks, even by a small bit, it throws off working capital, it throws off cash. So actually, you know, we convert more cash. If you look at the big staffers, and it's it's you know it's, it's publicly uh, out there, but you know, I think Hayes generated about 150 million of cash over the last 12 months, and that was just after they did a raise, right? So you know, they're sitting on a cash pile that is this big, mm-hmm. and I think you know, big tent businesses tend to to ride out these stories well. Yeah, small perm businesses, it's a real battle. And you know, I think you know. I know that the state, you know, that the market is very small, um, as in the sub ten. Um, I think that's honestly problematic for the industry. You know, it's overserved. Competitive intensity in this country is high, which is why the fees in the UK are so poor. Which is why everybody's invested in Europe and America, where actually you're allowed to make some money, and it's not rude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure well what did you you told me before we went on air that you think that the the kind of you know the the government's view on the job situation right now is probably not quite what what, what's the reality tell us a bit more about what you meant by that so so i think if we read the newspapers and you know we listen to the tv which we all do you know everybody's a bit frightened at the moment people are talking about significant job losses when the jrs end etc etc so it's a bit gloomy lots of macroeconomic support for, for investment and growth and so on, so on, so on, so When you sit at the front end and, and recruitment in the round is, in PLC then it's called a high beta stock, right? What that really means is it's very sensitive to economics. So recruitment is the first into a recession, but it's also the first out. And what you see is that I believe, and I was sitting on a meeting with the REC with a load of other chief execs of quite big businesses, there wasn't one of us that wasn't really excited about the coming year, right? Everybody is busy. Everybody has got work on. People are struggling to convert it a little bit because there's a nervousness in the employed individual to move jobs. So we're sitting there and we are at total capacity, right? The only thing holding me back at the moment for growing this business significantly is can I get enough great people to come work for us, right? And and there isn't really a number I could put on that. You know, if we can get them, we'll have them. Um, so that's just a shout out to anybody out there. Um, yeah. But I think that is the only inhibitor to growth for us. We have more work now what to do with. And that was consistent across, you know, the bigger guys. And therefore, I suspect that will be dripping through to the smaller guys too. So I see that the government thinks is all a bit wobbly and all a bit frightened about it. And actually, we're at the front end of this and we think it's going to be really busy and it's going to be really interesting. What about what when furlough ends, what do you think will happen then? What will be the knock-on effect? Well, I, I think by definition, if furlough ends, which you know, and, and principally, who is on furlough now? In the in the main, it's hospitality and retail, right? Yeah. So, so by definition, the pubs will reopen, right? And uh, you know, the hospitality market will pick up. Um, I, I I mean, I, we were chatting about you know that pub that took seven hundred bookings, right, in twenty four hours. There is going to be revenge leisure. Everybody is going to go mental. Yeah. Right? People are booking up holidays. You won't be able to find them. The prices are going to go up. Right? But my view is, where are you going to get the staff? Because all these guys on furlough are driving Amazon vans around. 
right? You know, I don't think, or volunteering, and, and so lots of people have taken a different view of their life, right, having been through this last 12 months. We know a significant number of the Europeans have gone home. And, you know, the, the estimate from government is somewhere between two and 700,000, right? And my view is if it's at the upper end of that number, there is going to be significant, significant skill shortages. Now, that might translate to be a temporary thing, as in there might be a drop, a rising unemployment, a spike. But my personal opinion is that there is a big demand out there at the moment. And in the sector, certainly, that we work in, it's 100% employment already, right? So, you know, I don't know many IT contractors on furlough or IT staff on furlough. I don't know any doctors on furlough. You know, I don't know any builders on furlough, right? You know, they're all working. Um, there's a bit on furlough in the facilities management markets in, you know, central London, for example. But, and I can't speak for ourselves, in all of our sectors, we are busy. And, and, and that's, a, that's a great sign for me. Um, that is brilliant. That is really, really brilliant. Um, so, Tim, we're an hour and five minutes. I, I could talk to you all day. I've loved it. Uh, it's literally like education for me personally. But looking at my audience, I'd say the majority are going to be, you know, in that smaller, smaller. I mean, we do, we obviously, we get, you know, we get some big, big organizations listening. But, you know, of, of the 20,000 people that monthly tune in, majority around the world are in your, 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 they're either in an agency and they've not started their own business yet, or they're in a business uh, in the early days of growth. Like you mentioned one thing before, which Holly, who's listening, I'm just going to put that on the screen. So Holly wrote, great live. Thank you, Tim and Sean. Amazing to hear a guru's story of his journey in the industry. Huge admiration. And then wrote, if you don't know, ask. Right. So that was an amazing line. If you don't know, ask. But what three things, if, you, if you're talking directly now to the people that are in those you know, early days, what three things would you say to them to think bigger? Because that's why we we're listening to you is because we all want to we all want a piece of the potential of being in a bigger organization, thinking bigger than just getting like you said, just getting to twenty staff and that's it. Thinking bigger. What's the advice? Uh, number one, it's all about your people, right? And and it's not about how you manage them specifically and tactically. It's about do they feel part of something? Are they part of a journey? Are they part of a vision? Right. Mm -hmm. And then how can you then help them? To get you to grow that journey and we have some we call it build a division not a desk right you know think about if you're running a desk how could you get three people working for you building that desk out right so we we don't really have employees right what we consider our people to be is little businesses right and and our job is to enable them to grow their division as hard and fast as they can and that's what drives career aspirations you know you want to run 10 staff great let's do it but i'm not going to give them to you you got to go and get them so how do you do that? Well, you need good customers, right? And again, I work on the basis. We always talk about it's candidate-led market. And, and of course, that's true. But if you've got good customers, placing your candidates is a lot easier, right? So I think the bit that recruitment always gets wrong is it's after the quick money, it's after the quick buck, it's after the quick smash and grab fee, right? And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think you should look at the lens through your customer's eyes. And if you deliver a really good job, there is more work in one customer than you know what to do with, right? Yeah. The scale of these things is vast, right? I mean, and, and you take such a small clip off of it. I think, you know, people fight HR, don't help HR, augment them, help them solve their problem, make them look good, right? 
No one cares because it's not their money in corporate land, right? If you make them look good, they don't care how much you charge them, right? Procurement, mate, but it's a different story, right? And and don't don't be greedy. You know, don't do the stupid greedy stuff for a, you know, we call it a good pound, bad pound, right? A good pound is a pound that I can repeat many times. A bad pound is I get a pound and nobody ever talks to me again. So, again, if you just think about how you deal with a temp to perm dispute or a credit or whatever it is, yeah, you might be able to nick away another couple of grand, but that client will never talk to you again. And people don't forget. And I say this, right? If, you know, if somebody does something bad to you, how long does it take you to forget and forgive? Could be a long time. You don't, right? Oh, so yeah. so I've got I've got rec to recs that have pissed me off. I'll never deal with them ever again. I can't even name them now from 20 years ago. I wouldn't do that, but I can, <laughs> right? So, so just understand, I'm a customer too, right? So it's all about your people and make them feel part of something and building something and giving, making it exciting for them and their career and look after them. You know, you won't grow a business if you can't grow your headcount. It's utterly linear, our sector. So if you've got 20 consultants, you'll be doing about 2 million gross profit if you're UK. If you're Germany, America, or we're a bit more, but let's stick with some UK numbers, right? If you want to do 4 million gross profit, you will need 40 people. If you can't hang on to the people you've got already, right, by giving them exciting careers, right, you'll never get the next 10 to join you. But if you get both of those things right, you'll have 40 people before you know it, right? And I think, for me, you start with people and that's it, and then you go to customers, and you can define customers as a client or a candidate, I don't care. But look after them. And, and my third one, if I could say, is be proud of being a recruiter. I, I have loved this career. It's been just spectacular all the way through. I've had some ups and downs, clearly, right? But we all do. But I think, genuinely, I believe this, right? I think we change people's lives, right? We utterly, utterly give, you know, if you've got a bad job, right, you have a rubbish life. If you've got a really good job, your life is way, way better. You know, we spend a lot of time doing it, right? So there, that plays to being a professional. And if I could wave a magic wand is I would like recruiters to be seen to be a professional service rather than, a, a, or even at least an honest broker, rather than a kind of sort of shiny smash and grab and big fat knotted ties and ringing bells, honestly. I'm so, confident. I mean, I, I probably only deal with a certain percentage of all, that type of person, but... You know, I'm coaching thousands of recruiters now um, through the academy. And, uh, you know, when I asked that question, like, you know, what's your number one driver to be part in this industry? Like money comes up, but it ain't like people don't just want to sell the grand for money. Like they want to actually enjoy it. They want to have a purpose. They want to, they believe in what you've just said. Like, you know, it, it feels good. The best thing I think about recruitment is when you get it right, everyone is absolutely happy. There's no win-lose. It's win-win. The client's happy. The client's happy. You're happy. Your boss is happy. You're, everyone's fucking happy. And and I think that's that's a feeling that that everyone shares. What finally, just to wrap this up, because I'm mindful of your time and um, you're what, just getting me out of a budget meeting, mate. So I could do this all day. Oh, <laughs> what, what what when what do you you've already talked about the the the, the sort of mini MBA? I know you've done stuff at Harvard. You've done stuff with London Business School. What do you what do where do you get your information from now? What publications? What podcasts? What books? What Give me, give us three or four things that you are currently tuning into that others might benefit from. Um, I, honestly, it's called Google, right? And you know, you you can get a level of depth. So you know, if you want to know about something, you know, find the Harvard Business Review paper on it, right, and read it. You know, and I think there is a that, that again, I don't know this, but you know, in HR land, the only correlation they can really find around people that have successful careers. 
right, um, and people that don't, are people with a voracious appetite for learning. And again, I preach this all the time, is that yeah, I will be sitting there chatting to somebody, Googling what they're talking about if, if I don't know what it is. And that takes you down some proper rabbit holes and gives you opportunity to read white papers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, you know, if you haven't read Jim Collins' Good to Great, you know, if you haven't read the classic, you know, One Minute Manager, right, which, by the way, everybody, everybody mocks, but I think he's probably the Bible of per people leadership, right, honestly, yeah, then go and get them and go and read them. Yeah, they will give you a different view of insight. I'm a little bit sniffy about business books because I think, you know, actually you could condense most of it in about six pages, right? <laughs> but you can normally get that out of the index and then go and Google the stuff you want to know, right? So I don't think you need to be mad about it. The Harvard and the, and the London Business School stuff is really a technical level and it's a kind of strategic level um, and is really only relevant if you're going to be involved in bigger corporates. I think that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to spell strategy. And I'll leave you with this thought, right? Most recruitment consultants don't know the difference between strategy and tactics. And I'm not going to tell you, you can go away and find that out. Because when you get that right, you understand really what you should be doing with your day as a proprietor or an owner, or even running a desk that you're trying to turn into a division. Well, I, well, I completely agree. I mean, I, I I teach social strategy right now, right? How to strategically grow your LinkedIn following. How do you grow your, you know, your your engagement? How do you get the right people to get into the right conversations by predict, planning ahead and looking at this as instead of just going and scrolling like most people do. Um, Gary has just written on here, um, one of the best guests you've had on the podcast. Great advice, great insight. Thank you, Sean and Tim Cook. So um, no problem, Gary. Thanks for tuning in live. Tim, um, I want to say thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed every second of it. I Literally, I could talk to you for hours. I've got meetings. You have to get to that budget meeting. Hopefully, I've, we've not lost you anything. Um, well, I, I'll have a glass of red wine with you or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you, you, you probably will get people messaging you, but if, if anyone did want to reach out and have a 15-minute catch-up or just ask you some questions via email, um, are you open to that? Yeah, yeah. Always. And, and listen, I'm, I love teaching. I love helping people. I wouldn't. I don't have any secrets, right, in our business. I, I call it, unfortunately, the open kimono, right? But, you know, the point here is that I like the industry. I support the REC around that, apps go around it, because anything that's making us better as a, as a business helps all of us. So, yeah, and I'm very happy. I'll make it available to you, Sean. You can do what you like with it. Wicked. All right. Um, and in terms of... Uh, moving forward, we'll definitely look to get you back on in twelve months' time or so. Let, I want—I'd love to know how the next year goes and what what you what you see, what uh, how the business goes, how you how you get on in that in that progression of of the business. Thank you for the time; I really appreciate it. Tim. It's my pleasure. If I'm drinking champagne or smoking cigars, I'm I'm on. All right. <laughs> we'll do we're going to get the the podcast live going as well when the uh, world opens up. So we're uh, allowed. I'll get, I'll get you in. I'll get you in for that, um, guys. For for the listeners, um, thank you again for giving me your time. Um, hope you've enjoyed today's show with Tim. I I know you will have if you've listened right the way through. Um, I always say this, but if you are listening online, if you're on the Apple Podcast Store, please get in. Give us your ratings. It allows Apple to push us up the rankings, and more people can listen. Also. You know, you, I, I guarantee if you're in this sector, you're listening to shows like this, you're going to know other people that will benefit. Please share it. Get it in WhatsApp, text, email, whatever. Put it on LinkedIn. Um, the more people that listen to it, to the stories, the experience of people like Tim, the stronger I believe this industry is. And Tim wrapped it up perfectly when he said, 
be proud of being a recruiter, you know, and and, and I believe that together we're actually going to be stronger than, you know, competition is healthy, but we can learn from one another. And that's the whole point of the show. So please share it, get it out to people far and wide. I'm going to be back again next week, um, next Wednesday, with another episode of the RAG podcast with uh, Paul Flynn, who is the founder of Umbilico and uh, previously with Cordant Group, um, which is, uh, I'm sure you know Paul, Tim. I'm sure you've come across Paul in the past. Um, Another with a great story. Um, In the meantime, please stay safe and I'll see you all soon. This podcast is brought to you by Hoxo Media. We are the world's number one inbound marketing agency exclusively focused on helping the recruitment industry. Myself and my business partner started the business in 2017, having been recruiters for seven years before. We felt that the recruitment industry back then needed to change and that marketing was going to play a huge role in the way that new and existing recruitment organizations won business and stood out in such a crowded marketplace. In three years, We've now worked with over 200 organizations around the world. We reach a huge audience with both this podcast and content online. And we have over 55 recruitment agencies right now. We're managing the marketing force. So that involves strategy, content creation, distribution, systems process, and leads generated. Having been recruiters and marketeers, We can not only build your brand, but we're also able to connect it to your sales team and ensure that leads are generated as a result of marketing. There's a clear ROI that leads to sales activity. But we also understand recruitment businesses. That's small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses in all sectors. We understand you, we've done the job, and we can build campaigns that are super relevant to what you need as a business right now. We've also recently launched the Hoxo Academy, which is designed to help recruitment owners, recruiters and marketeers learn from the work that we do so that you can action some of this stuff in-house on your own. The Academy has been launched in May 2020 and has already had an amazing uh, response from the market and it's only going to grow one way. So if you're interested in either having Hoxo support you build your marketing as as a supplier that acts as part of your team or you want to be trained by us on how to do it yourself, then get in touch. Visit www.hoxomedia.com and register your interest on our homepage. We will then get back to you within 24 hours and arrange uh, an introductory call. Thanks again for listening to this show. Every single one of you means so much and we will see you again soon.